the first Presto Music Podcast of 2021. In 1711, an article appeared in the Giornale di Letterati d'Italia, reporting on an as yet unnamed new musical invention, which the article's author dubbed a clavicembalo col piano e forte, that is to say, a harpsichord with both soft and loud. Neither its inventor, Bartolomeo Cristofoli, nor its name-giver, Francesco Scipioni, could possibly have predicted that this so-called pianoforte would, by the middle of the 19th century, revolutionise music-making in both homes and concert halls. That just as the piano became dominant, another new technological marvel, Thomas Edison's phonograph, would arguably have an even greater impact on music. And on the show today, my guest and I have picked 10 of our favourite solo piano recordings from 85 years of recorded music, taking us from Bach, from Edwin Fischer, through such legendary ivory tinklers as Arthur Schnabel, Vladimir Horowitz, Marta Argerich, and then back to Bach from Vikingur Olafsson. Hopefully, on the way, we'll be able to shed some light on the art of piano playing and pianists themselves. Joining me at the piano stool, taking on the flamboyant filigree right-hand part while my left hand struggles with even a simple bass line, is the second guest from last year's Presto podcast. However, since professional critic and retired pianist Harriet Smith was such a popular guest last year, it seems only fair to bump her up to first this time around. Welcome back, Harriet. It's very nice to be back, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. With so many amazing performances to choose from, I can only apologise if some of your favourite pianists and performers haven't made our selection. We begin, appropriately enough, in the beginning, with the first, and still regarded by many as the greatest recording of the Old Testament, J.S. Bach's exploration of the possibilities of this newfangled equal temperament. Here's the first prelude from the first book of Bach's well-tempered clavier, recorded by Edwin Fisher in 1933. There's a wonderful, almost organic flow to Fisher's 48 played, I believe, without the use of any pedal, isn't there? I'm not sure, actually. I think he perhaps was using pedal, but it's very subtly applied. But the first thing that strikes you about that, I think, is how naturally it flows. Um, It's a relatively swift speed for the prelude, but there's also just an amazing sense of line to everything he does. He shapes it so beautifully, and he he chooses which notes he's going to sustain, and I just think it's incredibly natural sounding. Yes, it reminds me of sort of the waves on a beach, doesn't it? It has a natural flow to it. 
I think so. And it's interesting because that was recorded back in 1933, as you said, um, as a result of the kind of efforts of the Bach Society, which was set up, obviously, to promote the composer's music. And there was a certain amount of opposition because people thought that maybe, you know, 48 Preludes and Fuse weren't going to make great recordings. How wrong can you get? I mean, we can laugh about that now, but that really was so groundbreaking in so many ways. And it's it remains, you know, nearly 90 years later, the most amazing set. I just go back to it constantly and I'm always amazed. Even if you don't agree with some of the tempi and things he does, there's just a great conviction about what he does. And that's what makes Fisher so endlessly fascinating, I think. It's very much a companion to Pablo Casal's recording of the cello suites and Yehuda Menuhin's recording of the sonatas and partitas, taking this music which was seen as perhaps pedagogical and uh, making, allowing people to enjoy it just for its own sake. Exactly, yes. I certainly agree with you about Casal's. Perhaps not quite so much about Menuhin, but um, he's a bit of an acquired taste, I find. <laughs> well, difficult to please at the best of times, Bach wasn't particularly impressed with the early Silverman pianos he encountered in 1736. Yet Bach's music is now central to many pianists' lives, often being treated as a kind of musical ablution. What makes it so important to pianists, even if they don't play Bach in public? I think it's just one of those things that it's his music is so transcendent that it doesn't really matter whether it was intended for you know this keyboard instrument or that keyboard instrument or a violin or an organ or whatever in the first place it it really does translate from from medium to medium which is why something like the art of fugue can be equally convincing played by you know a single kind of pianist or you know saxophone quartet i mean it is just it's endlessly um kind of repeatable i think possibly because it's not always that specific to its original instrument which is why you know when we we kind of talk about you know things like the concertos you know some of them were the, some of the keyboard concertos were almost certainly you know originally for violin and and they just they just work he he is endlessly transcribable and i think the only limit really is the imagination of the artist um who's who's performing it it was writing music in an age where people didn't necessarily write music for specific instruments so much as they do now that's certainly true, of course, and and also as a pianist, uh, when you approach something like you know the Forty Eight or the Goldbergs, you have to put so much into it. You know, there's there's very little indication of things like obviously dynamics didn't exist on the harpsichord or the clavichord, um, so those are, and and then you have to make decisions about pedalling or not pedalling, how subtle you're going to be about it, whether you feel that you know certain bass lines need emphasising, so you might sort of double things I mean obviously that's taking a certain amount of poetic license but I think if it's done with enough conviction as we're going to hear later on I think um, it, it it's amazingly effective. Well if Bach's 48 represent the Old Testament then Beethoven's 32 represent the new. Let's skip to the end of our Bible studies now with a sampling of the second movement variations from Beethoven's final piano sonata opus 111 played by the man who allegedly invented Beethoven the first to record the complete sonatas Arthur Schnabel. Thank you. 
Harriet Arthur Schnabel was perhaps or famous or perhaps more accurately infamous, especially in his later years for wrong notes, which I gather is still a bit of a touchy subject amongst pianists. As someone more musically trained than I, how jarring are wrong notes to you? And which is more important, technical or interpretive mastery? Well, I don't think you can entirely separate the two, just to take that, the last bit of that question first. In order to convey what you feel interpretatively, you've got to have a certain amount of technical mastery to get it across, or else, you know, it, it, it could be a sort of five-year-old playing the piano. Um, of course, Schnabel is in, is in good company. You just think of somebody like Alfred Courteau, who was another legendary pianist who, again, latterly particularly, um, hit, hit quite a lot of wrong notes. But somebody once quipped, better their wrong notes than most people's right notes. Oh. It's it's one of those things where you have to you have to put this in context. Before the 1950s, you couldn't really edit. Um, you could retake you know, passages, but you couldn't actually stop kind of inserting correct notes into something. So there's there's that kind of element of historic pianism where really wrong notes are a part of the equation unless you're somebody like Joseph Hoffman who, you know, was was just had the most extraordinarily kind of clean technique and, and didn't really didn't really go in for wrong notes at all. I mean, you know, any live performance you go to now I mean, if it's it's often more interesting to hear a pianist who who might have the odd slip, but has something powerful to say about the music, than somebody who's just practice and practice and practice until it's all sort of absolutely clean and perfect, but they stop taking risks with the emotional end of of the music. And Schnabel, there's a there's a lovely quote where he says he believes that the the nature of performance um, is to happen but once, to be absolutely ephemeral and unrepeatable. And that's very much what comes across in his recordings, I think, which is why it's still worth listening to something like the Beethoven cycle. And I think the wrong notes and the rhythmic instabilities become less important than the powerful kind of emotion behind what he's doing and again you might not agree with what he's doing but it it has a a conviction about it and a rightness that that I think makes it very truthful and and still very relevant today. There's an element with these people that were recording things when recording technology was new that they didn't really have a recording mindset they were still very much of the mindset well it's a live performance but just done on a recording rather than a recording per se that everything has to be absolutely perfect and we can edit it down to the you know to the to the extreme they were they were approaching it it was like a live recording yes and that, that's a really good point actually and i think you know there is a downside to the the kind of state we've we're in today for example where uh, you can edit anything to such a degree that it's it sort of, you know, you can become totally obsessed as an artist about just having something perfect. Partly, of course, because actually critics have made life worse for artists by kind of saying, well, I don't know why they left that wrong note in, you know, that's just, you know... Um, <laughs> That so that hasn't helped things, but I think it is always that balance, and I think ultimately what you want in a re- in a recording is to feel that there's a a kind of immediacy of it uh, about the performance that that makes it kind of living and vital, and anything that's that's too kind of overdone um, can sound rather stale and stayed, and too safe, which is perhaps the worst thing. Worst thing it could be. <laughs> Well, if Arthur Schnabel has become famous or infamous for his, at times, imprecise playing, our next pianist, 
according to the musical critic Harold Schoenberg, could no more play a wrong note than a bullet could be diverted from its path once fired. Harriet, what have you picked from the Italian Arturo Benedetti Michelangelo's small but highly accurate discography? Well, this is uh, him in 1950, so relatively early on, um, and it's the Bach Buzoni Chacon um, that uh, is tr- turned from this extraordinary work for solo violin by Buzoni into this almost orchestral template uh, and it's it's just a piece of such awesome power and what I love about the Michelangelo version is that it has all that colour and immediacy but it has this grand rhetorical feel to it as well it's quite again it's quite swift there's a sense of real urgency about it whereas some artists very much see it as this majestic sort of you know uh, kind of behemoth almost you know it's kind of a vast piece Michelangelo kind of pushes it quite hard and I just find it I find it emotionally absolutely overwhelming it's just extraordinary How does Michelangelo manage to get a legato sound to imitate a violin that makes us forget that he's making music by making lots of little hammers hit strings? Well, that's the that's the art of, <laughs> of the great pianist, really, isn't it? It's, it's, I mean, of course, it's an illusion. It's a mixture of, of the way he phrases uh, and the sense that he really does conjure these epic kind of lines out of the air almost and of course it's down to subtle peddling the sense of the contrapuntal of the kind of horizontal lines running through it as just as much as the kind of changing harmonies uh but yeah i mean i think you know he's just one of the great pianists i have to say i mean like everything from michelangelo the playing is peerless but i often get the sense of recording from him of a sort of detached beauty I don't think it's unsurprising that his recording of the Ravel G Major concerto is probably his most famous recording. His personality seems to match that of Ravel's with its sort of aesthetic aloofness and perhaps an obsession with perfection at the expense of more human qualities. To to err is human, Harriet. Without erring, is is Michelangelo a human? Well, what you've got to remember is the other side of that, Ravel, is the Rachmaninoff Fourth Concerto, which is certainly not a sort of... uh, I mean, nobody could ever describe Rachmaninoff's music as aloof. And I I mean, again, I just think that is a tremendously fantastic performance. As far as the Ravel goes, I think the the G major concerto, I think he gives it a, a crystalline quality in the outer movements. But... The, the humanity of the slow movement is just extraordinary and I think he really brings that across actually so I think it's very easy to sort of start pigeonholing artists particularly those who apparently don't sort of you know make errors uh, as kind of cold aloof um, you know perf- 
perfect, crystalline. Um, all of these words can be used, you know, against somebody. But actually, I think at his best, um, there is an absolute humanity to it, which is why I think Nabokov Busani is is such an extraordinary recording. Yeah, I mean, there are moments where um, you you te- you sense in other pieces, in other performances, he's he's not completely sort of in the moment. But um, you know, I think at his best, he is quite extraordinarily powerful as a, a communicator. Agreed. Well, another famous communicator of the 20th century, Charlie Chaplin, once claimed that he had met just three geniuses in his life, Albert Einstein, Winston Churchill, and our next pianist, Clara Haskell, who, for me, is particularly associated with Mozart, thanks to some truly legendary concerto recordings and chamber music performances with Arthur Grumio. But Harriet, why have you picked her recording of Schumann's Opus 1, Abeg Variations? Well, this is, I mean, I I think Clara, I totally agree with you about Clara Haskell's Mozart playing. It is absolutely wonderful. And I was quite tempted by by something from, from, you know, the sonatas. But what's interesting about the Abegg variations is this is early Schumann. It's him as a kind of, you know, fail. I mean, he wanted to be a piano virtuoso and and he you know had to give up that dream of being a pianist after a sort of injury to his hand. And this is very much expressing that sort of bubbling and and brilliant and sort of easy on the ear kind of delight. I mean, it's, it's kind of it's very high class fluff basically. But when you're <laughs> when it's played by somebody like Haskell, it it's turned into something much greater than that. And that's what's really interesting. I think the lyricism comes through absolutely beautifully because, of course, she is such a wonderful proponent not just of Mozart but of Beethoven and Schubert too, and Schumann. Uh, you know, the sort of the more um, kind of acknowledged masterpieces as well but in the in the kind of skittish moments she's just got such an easy virtuosity about her which I I think brings another another side to to what we know of her and you know let's not forget that she was a wonderful Scarlatti pianist as well some wonderful Scarlatti recordings and she recorded all sorts of other things you know fire and so her repertoire is a lot bigger than than we actually kind of tend to focus on which is which is the Mozart and particularly the Mozart concerto recordings as you mentioned. Perhaps there's there's been this image of her created that we seem given that she always appears to be a sort of a frail sort of frail old woman we think oh well she could only play Mozart but she was a real virtuoso I gather she had massive hands and what was called the fastest thumb in the west. <laughs> she could probably be in a sharpshooter then couldn't she? I think one of the other interesting things that so you mentioned the 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 Beethoven sonata recordings with Grumio. Um, Haskell was actually also a rather good violinist and Grumio was a good pianist. So from time to time, they used to swap round and just, you know, they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd sort of play the Beethovens, but with her playing the violin and Grumio accompanying her, which I just think is priceless. Yeah. If only we had recordings of that. Do we too easily typecast pianists like people have done with Haskell? And what do you think of the dangers of doing so? Well, I think part of the problem is, well, it's not a problem, it's it's, it's actually a, a wonderful thing. Because the repertoire is so huge, it's it's kind of easier to sort of say, oh, yes, you know, Clara Haskell, the great Mozart pianist, you know, Schnabel, the great Beethovenian, you know, um, Rubinstein, the great Chopin player. Uh, with And it, of course, it, it sort of, in some cases, that's absolutely, you know, the, the case and that, that is their one thing. Glenn Gould and Bach, for example, um, although obviously he did do other things, but um, you don't really need to hear him playing Brahms. Um, but I do think that, I think that it, it can sort of 
be a rather one-sided view. And of course, that's that's one of the great things about about kind of you know the the richness of recording we have these days because you know people put out you know complete boxes of Clara Haskell for example or Mireille Jao Pirosh which allow you to look at the whole kind of person not just the things for which they're best known and so that's you know as I say that's one of the upsides but yes I mean you know I think I think Haskell is a good example of somebody who's who's much more than just a Mozart pianist. Yes, in that complete Clara Haskell edition, there is a wonderful Chopin second concerto that does make me wish there was some solo Chopin from. Exactly, yes. Well, I mean, she she kind of, she had a career sort of against all the odds in a sense because she suffered with ill health pretty much all her life. So, you know, it's it's a miracle really that we've, we've got as much as we have. Um, and I still think it's a shame that she's so overshadowed by her Romanian counterpart, Dino Lepati, who of course was, was peerless too, but much more was made of his career, I think, and his kind of early death at 33, which was... You know, tragic, but I think Haskell was is just as important a figure in in the history of piano playing. recording there was from 1951 and we skip forward to 1965 for our next performance but in those intervening years you wouldn't have actually been able to hear our next pianist in concert. Vladimir Horowitz returned to concert Carnegie Hall after 12 year hiatus caused such a demand for tickets that a passerby was heard to exclaim is this a Beatles thing? Sometimes regarded as the last romantic here's a snippet of him playing music from one of the first at that legendary concert Chopin's first ballade. Thank you. 
Harry, as wonderful as this performance is, is there perhaps an element of event pianism and you had to be there to this in terms of some of the rubatum and phrasing? A case of overacting, perhaps, to make sure he reaches the back of Carnegie Hall? Or basically, was Horowitz always just a showman? I think it, it's, it, it depends who you ask, but I think ultimately... Horowitz, whether you love him or loathe him, is such an important figure in the piano world and in in sort of the history of piano playing. And it's interesting because that recital on the 9th of May 1965 was was so hyped and he, he you know he'd spent years away from the concert hall you know depressed and and kind of uneasy with things and and sort of relearning repertoire rethinking things and you you hear on the recording the first piece there is, is uh, before we get to the Chopin is is a Bach Bisoni and it goes horribly wrong within about 30 seconds. In fact, about 10 seconds, he hits an absolute blooper of a wrong note. And there is that fallibility about him. I mean, in that sense, he's the opposite to Michelangelo. But on the other hand, the, there's a kind of white heat of being in the moment. Yes, there are clunky moments in the Chopin Ballade and there are forced accents and there are things that don't work. But then there are the most beautiful filigree moments and just the sense that he's he's an artist kind of absolutely communing with his audience and and acting as a conduit between the composer and and the audience and i think that's a really a really important facet of 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 pianism he's kind of i mean in in a sense i kind of think he's a bit like maria callas you know who who you know some hate for the sort of you know the kind of over emoting and and the kind of qualities of the voice but then if you kind of take that away and just look at the the way that she's she's communicating so directly with the audience it's it's that sort of intensity of experience love it or loathe it it's it is very very powerful i think yeah like maria callas horowitz did become a household name much more than other pianists Yes, and I think that's the fame thing, isn't it? And it's and it's the kind of fact that, you know, he would kind of disappear from stage for a long time. And I think, you know, I mean, that must be incredibly hard to live with, actually. I mean, it's very much a poison chalice. Yeah, Horowitz famously retired and returned to live performances many times due to what was called at the time nervous exhaustion. Would it be right to call the life of a concert pianist the loneliest profession? And what are some of the psychological demands that are placed on pianists? Well, loneliest. I think maybe hermits and lighthouse keepers might disagree, but, but yeah, there is there is of course a point to this. Uh, I think I think you have to be very very tough to be a pianist, and I think you have to be very determined that you are going to continue and that you want to do it enough to to sort of you know make a life like that all the traveling all the you know solo recording I mean it's you know it's wonderful when you get in you know into a hall and you're playing a concerto or you're you know playing the Brahms piano quintet or you know kind of Beethoven violin sonatas or whatever but but yes I think fundamentally it is a very solitary occupation and I think it needs a certain ability to 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 not burn out obviously i mean and that's possibly the example of horowitz is is a good one there of just the fact that he kind of gave so much on stage that he then sort of would would retire and and then sort of do it all over again i mean john ogden is another another interesting example um of you know burning out i mean that was for you know very much psychological reasons but i think there is a, a huge amount of pressure and also things like the expectation that that you're going to play recitals from memory. We have list 
to to blame for that because he was the first one who really kind of um, did that. And in fact, Chopin before him kind of thought that anyone who learned something from memory and then sort of performed it was actually showing off. So it's interesting how, how fashions have changed with that. But no, I mean, I think it's, it, you know, you can sort of see why artists like Marta Argerich decide that they're not going to give any more solo recitals because actually it, it is such a solitary thing and you have to psych yourself up to, to walk on that kind of stage, whether it's a, a small stage or a huge one. It's, it's immense every time you do it. I often get a sense, there's always a sense of the physicality of the piano itself and unlike a, a string instrument or a brass instrument, you're much less connected to it intimately. You know, a violinist holds it close to your body, the, uh, the uh, brass wind, they, they blow through it, so there's the breath. But with a piano, it's this sort of music machine, isn't it, that they have to sort of conquer each time. And then they go to, and they, they travel and everyone expects that all these pianos, they're all different pianos, but they expect expectation that they're all made in a factory and they're all identical. And, and it's a pianist can come along and just perform equally as well on, on sort of every scenario, every situation. The pianists become treated like machines, like the pianos. Well, it's a, it's a good point. I mean, it's, yes, I mean, it, because... I mean, some pianists do travel with their own pianos. Um, people like Christian Zimmerman spring to mind. But, but yes, I mean, for most for most pianists, it is it is kind of par luck, and and that <laughs> will of course massively, you know, alter, you know, how if you're if you're going to give a recital of Ligeti Etudes, for example, and the piano is, you know, not got a fast enough repeating mechanism, then you, you're not gonna you're not going to succeed, and then people the audience aren't going to understand that, and sometimes the critics don't either, and they kind of go, oh, they were a bit off off form today, you know, and, and it is that thing where you're you are far more out of control in that regard than than as you say, you know, somebody carrying a Stradivarius under their arm. And of course, it's much more obvious to detect because it's a binary. You either hit the right note or you don't. It's much easier for people to tell when notes have been missed. This is true. Yes. Although, you know, if you play it again, though, it does depend on the repertoire. I think um, obviously if you're playing in you know, a Beethoven four and the first chord comes out wrong, then um, <laughs> that is fairly obvious. Whereas if you're playing something, you know, if you're playing Boulez's second sonata, probably the... no one would notice anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the chances are that people aren't going to notice. <laughs> so. Well, our next pianist is someone for whom Horowitz was such an idol that she moved to New York in a vain attempt to meet him. Sadly, she never did, but that certainly didn't stop Marta Argerich from becoming one of those lionised pianists around. Remarkably, the recording we picked from this legendary figure was made while she was seven months pregnant, and later she claimed that it made her sound like, I quote, a pregnant housewife. Did you get that impression, Harriet, from her recording of Ravel's notorious Gaspard de la Nuit? I certainly didn't know, and I love that quote. I'd, I'd not heard it before, so I just, I mean, anything less like a pregnant housewife. Um, <laughs> this is not to offend pregnant housewives anywhere who might be playing Gaspard and listening to this podcast. Uh, but, I mean, anything anything less like something prosaic or, or kind of slightly portly could not be imagined. I mean, this is... This is Argrick in 1974, and her technique is so immense that 
for most people playing Gaspar, you can sense the edges of their technique and where they're worried about the music. But she just flies with it. It is absolutely extraordinary. And it's interesting. I went back to um, the original review in Gramophone just to see see what they made of it. And it was compared to Ashkenazi's, which was probably the only one around at that point. And the reviewer said that ultimately the performance was as a whole a failure um, though an interesting failure, and I just and it was partly because um, the slow movement Lejibe was she takes quite slowly. Although, interestingly, the reviewer didn't he he kind of admitted that it was marked by Ravel very slow, but and didn't say it sounded too slow. He just said, but she plays it too slowly. So again, it's this interesting critical thing where you have a certain expectation of how something should go and if it doesn't live up to that expectation then you start to sort of pick at it I mean I just think that this remains one of the most wild and unbridled and imaginative Gaspars on record and there have been many many since this one and what would you like for us to sample from it well I think we have to go into the last movement Scarbo which is just so extremely difficult and so extremely dramatic. It's this shape-shifting gnome who just has this kind of vanishing quality about it. And the, the virtuosity, I think, is absolutely at the service of the music here. It's just extraordinary. Gaspar is famously one of the most difficult pieces in the repertoire. What makes it so difficult? Well, a lot of the things that that sound difficult are not the most difficult things. So, for example, the very hushed opening of the piece, the kind of hands bunched together. I mean, again, you know, know, a lot of the music, because it's so complicated, it's on three staves. And so visually, it's, it's difficult to kind of to work out exactly how to weight things and how to kind of get the textures right. And and of course, beyond all that, beyond the technical difficulties, you've then got this kind of extraordinary kind of tone poems almost, kind of expressing, you know, Ondine, who's this kind of water sprite in, in the first piece, and then Lejibe, which is which is the, the kind of hangman, the kind of bo- the lifeless body drifting in, in the wind before, you know, then kind of reaching the last movement, Scar, which is, as I said, this shape-shifting name. Ravel's coloristic effects are quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, he was such an incredible orchestrator, but you sort of sense with the piano music that he's already kind of mentally orchestrated it. There's so many colours going on. And that's, these are all things that, that, you know, the pianist has to bring to life. Yes, you could call it a peaceful orchestra for piano. Indeed, yes, absolutely, yes. I often get the sense there's a 
difference between overt and more introvert difficulty. And I think pianists sometimes like to know that the public thinks, oh, this, this looks difficult, and that there's always a thrill of seeing a display of such skill, like a, a sporting event. Uh, on the other hand, I think there are, I gather there are parts of the repertoire that are very difficult, but don't sound it. I, I've heard that there are passages of the Brahms' second piano concerto, for example, which is very difficult, but doesn't sound like it. And of course, naturally for Brahms, is drowned out by orchestral tutties. I think that's I think that's true, and I think it's also true of, of a lot of sort of uh, Spanish music actually, p- people like Granados, where again the textures are incredibly difficult, and they're they're actually much harder than they sound. Um, whereas something like I don't know Rachmaninoff Third or something, I mean, which is incredibly difficult, but because Rachmaninoff knew what he was doing, he was such a a, a fabulous pianist. You know he okay you need big hands but it is it's kind of workable whereas I think with some composers you feel that they're almost working against the piano and so that that can create extraordinary difficulties actually yes yes it's interesting you brought up those Rachmaninoff concertos the recordings of that Rachmaninoff made of him playing his own concertos to me it's that he sounds so effortlessly able to perform them that there's sort of an element of magic about these concertos that lot that's lost in those performances because we like to see the imagine the pianist struggling against this impossible task that Rachmaninoff sort of seems to throw off quite easily I'm not sure I'd agree with that actually. I think one of the things that makes those performances so exciting is is there's a sense of drive and uh, and kind of there's a sort of buoyant energy to the outer movements, uh, which is not to sort of downplay any of any of the kind of you know struggle with the orchestra. And I think there then grew up a tradition of playing Rachmaninoff in a, in a much more sort of majestic, slow way, which which is really frankly against what he was doing I think it's against the music because I think the romance of the music and the greatness of it is already it's in there and actually if you start over-egging it it just becomes rather self-indulgent and that was of course you know some people thought that Rachmaninoff was not a great composer clearly they were wrong but you know I think that I think performances that slow things down and pull things about too much too much vibrato I think just it it destroys the line I mean you know I think I think it's all there in in the way it's written and and I think if you observe that quite quite closely and and listen to his his own recordings then that is the most brilliant example of, of how it should go well, Argerich reveled on DG dates from 1974, as does our next very different recording on the same label from a Russian bear, Emil Gilels. But this certainly isn't repertoire we think of when that name comes up, is it? No, it's not. And I just think this is one of my all-time favourite recordings. And when you asked the impossible of me to sort of come up with five you know, favourite piano recordings, which obviously changes on a week-by-week basis. This is one thing that doesn't change. I just think his account of Grieg's lyric pieces, 20, 20 pieces on there, that he, he takes us on a journey from the very earliest piece, the Arietta, which starts um, the first book, uh, right up to the last book, um, Op 71. It's just the most extraordinary journey. And... You know, to call these pieces, uh, you know, salon pieces or miniatures is really doing them a massive disservice, I think, because each one occupies such a kind of particular and vivid world. I just think this is extraordinary music and he really gets to the heart of that. And which one have you got for us to sample? 
Well, I thought we should we should sample the very last one on the desk, which is Nach Klänger, which translates as Remembrances. It's the last of the Op 71 pieces, dating from 1901, so just a few years before he died. It's a reminiscence of the Arietta, which begins the, the whole cycle, uh, and he turns it into this sort of gentle kind of waltz, but then there's this amazing side slip of a kind of harmonic shift down the semitone, which sort of undermines the whole thing and sort of makes you all uncertain and it has this amazingly quizzical ending and Gillard's captures all of this so beautifully. Do salon miniatures like the Greek lyric pieces require the same amount of attention as larger scale sonatas? And what are the different challenges for pianists when playing this very different type of repertoire? Well, I think, as I say, I don't like the co- <laughs> I don't like the word <laughs> salon music very much because it does. It implies something that's just just a kind of frippery. It's just there for a sort of fleeting pleasure and then it's gone. It implies a lack of, of profundity, if you like. Uh, Pink bonbons filled with snow, as Debussy <laughs> called them. Debussy, Debussy was wrong about this, I'm afraid. <laughs> There's a wonderful quote where he, he wrote rather unassumingly, Bach and Beethoven erected temples and churches on the heights. I only wanted to build dwellings for men to dwell in. And it is that sense of he's not creating things on a, on a big scale here, although he was quite capable of doing that, as we know from you know things like the violin sonatas and, of course, the, con- the piano concerto. But within each piece, he imbues such a kind of distinct character, a, a sense of a particular world. It's very interesting the way that as he got more familiar with folk music he'd, he'd sort of build things like the hardanga fiddle music into the into these so they occupy a really wide range of moods and and also kind of harmonic la- languages uh which i think just makes them so beguiling and to go back to the idea of if something's simple it doesn't take as much work i mean if you look at mozart for example you know he's the ultimate example of writing in his in his piano sonatas, for example, lines that can be so bare and so simple that they're 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 very difficult to bring across because there's nowhere to hide, and I think that's that's the thing, isn't it? If you're playing Ratman enough, there's always somewhere to hide because there's so much kind of going on and the textures can be very full. With Grieg, there's this similarly kind of distilled sense of of perfection, uh, and it's also it, it goes too for a composer we're going to be looking at a bit later on actually Monpu uh, and I just think what Gillard's does apart from obviously bring these pieces to a wider public which was really really important because at that time nobody really saw them as concert pieces but he also he does treat them as seriously as if he was playing a Beethoven sonata and that's why this recording is is so fantastically yeah. successful.
they do deserve to be treated like Beethoven sonatas. They're a different sort of thing, but yes, they're, they're an equally vital part of the diet, I think. Our next pianist is someone who, for me, exemplifies the phrase, the art that conceals art, Radu Lupu. To my untrained ear, it's difficult to pinpoint how he quietly hypnotises me in this performance of Schubert's monumental last sonata. I think you're a big fan of Lupu as well, Harriet. Is it something to do with his incredible control of dynamics that really draws you in? I think that's a, a really good point, yes. And interestingly, um, yes, we we both had Radu Lupu's Schubert on our, on our lists, I think. Uh, it, there's an extraordinary sound world. You hear somebody else play D960, the last Schubert sonata, and you're amazed by the sort of, you know, the vastness of the terrain and the wildness of, of some of the writing. And then you hear somebody like Lupu and you're just amazed by the the sort of intimate qualities of it and the fact that he's sort of communing this extraordinarily kind of transcendental music in a way that makes it sound as if you're the only one in the audience. I think that's one of the things that makes him so special. I also think that uh, his sound quality and the range of colours he gets uh, is is really exceptional and not for nothing. I mean, he he of course is Romanian too, and the, there's a kind of connection there in terms of the way that they they both kind of have this kind of color palette uh, and and also an ability to to use rubato but to use it in a way that's always in the service of the music. There's never a sense that it's applied from without. Um, Lupu is a is a very sort of humble human being and that sort of comes across in the greatness of his piano playing. I think so I think this yes, I could take any of the Schubert sonatas and and indeed the impromptus and and you know play them again and again. I just think they're marvellous. Hopefully we can give you a quick glimpse into the magic of Radulupu Schubert with a small excerpt from his Schubert's final piano sonata. Pianists are perhaps unique in that they are expected to memorise large amounts of repertoire off by heart, including almost 20 minute long sonata movements like Schubert's Deutsche 960. How do they do this? Well, as I say, this is Liszt's fault because he did start the process. I think it's, for a lot of pianists, it's it's a vital part of their training that they do learn to memorise music. And interestingly, I think actually something like D960 is probably easier to learn and to memorise than certain pieces where you can end up going round and round in circles if you, if you kind of, but you get get off at the wrong uh, the wrong bus stop if you like, and you and you it can be very complicated if particularly something that's quite repetitive. 
even something quite simple like Schumann's arabesque if you're if you're playing that and you're nervous and you kind of played the episode and then you're back to the original and you're you kind of get confused you know even things that sound quite simple you can actually lose the the plot quite readily it is a bit of a tyranny and I think for some pianists it's a much easier process learning than others and I do think it's a pity that we are so obsessed as audiences with the notion that if somebody's got the music in front of them they haven't learnt it you know it depends very much on the complexity of the music but I, I do think it's you know or something like the Hammer Clavier Sonata I mean that is an epic learn and just to play it uh, let alone to, you know, to kind of memorise it is 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 an extraordinary ask. Uh, so I, I think we are gradually getting a little bit more relaxed about this as audiences, and I think that's probably a good thing. There's perhaps a belief that you couldn't have possibly internalised this music unless you knew it note, note for note off the top of your head. Yes, and of course, in some ways, it can give you a freedom once you've got that inside your head. But it depends very much, I think, again, on the personality of the pianist, because some... Some people do find it very easy to retain, you know, kind of almost a, a sort of, you know, visual image of, of the scores as, they, as they're playing it. And others don't. Others get flustered and, and that then kind of gets in the way of the performance. I mean, ultimately, I'm sure what we all want as, as audience members is for an artist to give it their best. And whatever that takes, I think, you know, we should we should be sympathetic to it. Our next disc was described as a disc in a million, and it certainly was a surprise to me that Harriet chose it. Can you introduce this disc of Arcade Volados playing the music of Spanish composer Federico Mompu? Yes, this is really special. I mean, I've been following Volados since fairly early on in his career. Um, I was lucky enough to be at his Carnegie Hall debut in 1998, and that was an incredible experience and ever since then I've you know I've I've followed him because I I do think he's he's a sort of case apart if you like among contemporary pianists I think that's partly because he sort of harks back to a to an older maybe golden age although golden age is a kind of a strange nebulous kind of thing that never actually really existed but the way that he can draw a, a sung line from from a, a percussion instrument is is quite extraordinary i think that comes in part from the fact that his parents were singers and that he didn't actually really start picking up the piano seriously till he was in his mid-teens and he'd sort of trained as a singer first so I think he thinks as a singer and it certainly comes through in whatever he's doing but allied to that is this epic technique I mean you know it's it's kind of it's right up there so when he was first signed by Sony the first disc he did was was of kind of transcriptions and he was giving people like Horowitz a run for his for his money and of course that made a name for himself as this kind of you know great young kind of you know epic sort of virtuoso pianist he was then doing things like recording Chike One and Rack Three and in a way that's that's misplaced because actually what he's always done incredibly beautifully is played music that is quite spare uh, certainly in the case of the Monpu, and just with so many dynamic shadings. I mean, more than more than Lupu, which is saying something, I think. So there's this sense of of kind of bringing you into the music, and the, the disc he he does of of, of Monpu is is a mixture of there are some early pieces, and then he do, he plays pieces from this extraordinary cycle, Musica Collada which is 28 pieces in four volumes. And it's the most distilled 
intense but beautiful music you could imagine and it's as much about silence as it is about notes and and there's nobody who could possibly play it more beautifully than he does and you've got an excerpt from musica Collada. i have indeed yes this is simply called uh, this is piece 24 and it's just marked moderato which gives you no idea of the kind of oral gem that that is about to unfold A review of this disc at the time was amazed that a virtuoso like Volodos could play music of a poet like Monpu so well. Aren't these terms used to describe pianists reductive and essentially just marketing gimmicks? Yes, they're incredibly reductive and <coughs> I, you can understand why they're there. Uh, I think it's to Sony's credit actually that they signed them, you know, thinking they got this sort of young titan. And they've continued that relationship. And even though he only records a disc every couple of years and it's very much on his own terms, it it has been some of the most important uh, kind of contributions to to the discography I think I've ever heard. I mean, his late Brahms was beautiful. He's done a couple of discs of Schubert as well. And they're all very much about kind of what what he is. And they're very personal. And sometimes he plays things very slowly so slowly that actually if anyone else were playing them you know the line would be lost i'm thinking particularly of some of the brahms here but but he has again such a sense of line and such a sense of of just endless phrasing and endless imagination that that they're incredibly beautiful and very moving our final pick brings us full circle in many ways back to bach and also back to the lost art of transcription popular in the era of 78s and now finding a new home in the world of streaming and downloads here, Icelandic pianist Vikingur Olafsson's transcription of the central aria from Bach's Widersteher Dr. Sunda Cantata in mood and execution brings back memories of Wilhelm Kemp's arrangement of Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring. Harriet, how are pianists and the repertoire changing to meet the needs of the changing way we consume music nowadays through streaming and downloads? Well, I like to think it's not actually a conscious decision. What's interesting about this disc is that it's got 35 tracks on it if you're being old-fashioned and looking at the CD. And it could have been a really bitty affair. But in fact, because Olofsson, first of all, is a pianist of such imagination and flair, uh, and, and secondly, is so good at programming, that it becomes very much something that you can listen to all the way through as a programme and feel entirely content and, and satisfied, um, just as he has done more recently with his, his disc of French music, um, combining uh, Rameau and Debussy. But there's also the sense of, as you say, you could you could pick any any of those tracks and, and be absolutely beguiled by them, because 
just as Gilles does in in the Greek, he gives so much kind of thought to everything that's there. And I think it's a wonderful mix of, of original Bach and some quite kind of unusual Bach as well. And, and transcriptions, not only the one um, that he's made himself, but also ones that have come through the 19th century. So are in that sort of grand pianistic tradition. And in terms of sort of pianistic lineage, I find that Oliverson has the sort of fantasy of Maria Jao Pirosh and Marta Argerich with the sort of contrapuntal kind of elan of Piotr Andrzejewski. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, a very winning um, kind of combination of, of, of things. And I think he's he's a, a marvellous pianist. Yes, it, it is a disc that works either as single tracks or as a full listening experience. I think so, very much so, yes. And... And um, it's one of those ones I've been going back to again and again. And and his own, as you say, his own transcription of the Cantata 54s sort of has a wonderful sort of weightiness to it that it's it's sort of more in the line of Alfred Deller, the great countertenor, than sort of a, a sort of more modern day take of it, take on it like Andreas Scholl. Uh, but it's just, he gets to the heart of the music so beautifully. As we were talked about in the start of the show, it does prove the indestructibility of Bach's music. It certainly does, yes, whether it's on the piano or anything else. Olufsen's album from 2018 completes our trip through recorded history, and as Camille Sanson famously observed in his Carnival of the Animals, pianists are perhaps a strange breed, and maybe after observing them both live and in the captivity of the recording studio, we understand them just a little bit better. My thanks again to Harriet Smith for her insights, Matt Groom for his production, and you for listening. Thank you.